Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. Five HR errors that cost these businesses huge penalties. Hi, I'm Mike Vinoy with Assure, and today we're going to unpack what I think are just normal use cases that I'm not going to say innocent business owners because they did get pinched, but I think most of the time business owners don't realize how many times they're actually breaking the laws and get themselves in trouble with HR. So we're going to do straight from the headlines. We're going to pull these stories. I got a great guest to help me unpack this information. Uh, if you're a regular watcher of the show, you know Brian, Brian Schenker. He's a New York-based attorney with Jackson Lewis. Brian's practice focuses on representing employers in a wide range of workplace matters, as well as preventative advice and counseling. Brian has extensive experience defending class action and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. He has successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor. And Brian regularly handles cases before courts, administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me, Mike. So we, we, you and I talk all the time on the show, trying to give the best advice we can, but sometimes uh, the, the best teaching just comes from real life examples, right? Where, where I, I think business owners accidentally, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, stumble into these issues. Uh, and so I'm going to, I'm going to read the headline. I'm going to kind of unpack the best I can, the, the, the high level, what happened. And then if you could kind of Give the give your best advice. If that was your client, what would you be telling them? Maybe after the fact, after it happened, but more importantly, what they could have and should have done to, to avoid. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. So this first one, uh, it was a federal. This is the headline: Federal investigation leads to six hundred four thousand in back wages and damages damages for a home healthcare business for FLSA violations. So that's the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, the U.S. Department of Labor, they did an investigation here into a home health care agency. Uh, more specifically, it's two owners. Uh, the agency asked direct care employees to sign documents waiving their right to overtime compensation. Instead of paying the legally required overtime rates for hours worked beyond the 40 in a work week, the agency paid straight time rates. Uh, the results of the investigation, the DOL uh, and the Wage and Hour Division specifically, they recovered $604,288 in back wages and liquidated damages for 50 affected employees. So, you know, not a small company, but not a huge company. 50 employees, 604 grand. Uh, the back wages amounted to 302000 with an equal amount awarded as liquidated damages. Additionally, the agency and its owners were assessed $18,703 in civil money penalties for intentionally violating the Fair Labor Standards Act. So when you read it that way, Brian, it's hard to defend the business owners. In your experience talking to business owners, I think I think it might be easier to stumble in these things than you think. It's like, well, they're not. In, they're intentionally not paying overtime. Maybe they were trying to smooth out people's pay. This is the thing I hear all the time. It's like, hey, you only work thirty hours this week. You might work fifty hours next week. So I want to give you an even paycheck. So even though you're technically an hourly employee, I'm not going to pay you overtime, but I'm also going to give you more on the on the under weeks to smooth it all out. You can't. You can't have your employees sign papers that violates the law, right? No, exactly right, uh, Mike. And so I think here, you know, this case, you know, again, let's use it as a learning, you know, example so that, you know, uh, anyone watching this does not make the same mistake. Uh, you know, the biggest issue here was that this employer seemed to believe that they could contract around the requirements of the FLSA, right? They weren't just here, you know, saying, you know, just refusing to pay overtime, right? They 
you know, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They thought that if they entered into, you know, agreements with their employees uh, regarding their pay that, and the employee agreed that, you know, they believed most likely that, you know, hey, regular principles of contract law apply, we can do this. Now, that being said, here's where the practical advice to employers comes. There's no contracting around the FLSA's requirements. Right. Uh, so what does that really mean? So, you know, the FLSA sets, you know, the floor, right? It sets the minimum wage and uh, requires overtime for non-exempt employees. Uh, and, you know, look, you know, unlike most areas of the law where employers, you know, companies can freely contract for the terms they want, the FLSA does not permit that, right? So what does this really mean? Uh, you know, Right. So all it's saying, all it's saying is you have to comply with the FLSA and you cannot provide lesser benefits, even if the employee agrees to that. And look, I, I can understand what this employer did because I have you know, many, many clients come to me seeking advice on you know, how to cut their you know, budgets. And obviously labor is a big part of it. And so they get creative and they think, Right. Something like this. Maybe I can pay straight time, just the regular rate for overtime if the employees are agreeable to that. Or, you know, I can just pay a salary to a non-exempt person, you know, as long as they agree to it. Uh, but the FLSA, you know, doesn't allow that. So right. I think, you know, what are a few implications of this? Right. Here's one clear example. Right. Contracting for, you know, no overtime. Um, but, you know, I think there are, you know, I, I'll just go through some other examples of this that I've seen from my own practice uh, where employers, you know, again, uh, we're not talking about intent, but, you know, they're, they're, you know, trying to get creative, right? And unfortunately, the FLSA and, you know, even state wage and hour laws, they don't care about intent. It's about compliance. Did you comply right. or not? Right. Um, so, you know, another area I see this, and I think I mentioned it a moment ago, is, you know, paying salaries to otherwise non-exempt employees who should be paid an hourly rate plus right. time and a half for overtime. Right. So, you know, a lot of times I'll have uh, an employer come in and say, hey, it's, you know, industry practice in my, uh, my field that, you know, this type of employee gets a salary. So, you know, that's what we're going to do. And we're fine because, you know, I, I know other companies who do this. Um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, I see it a lot in the hospitality industry, right? Take a right. pizza place, right? You know, the pizza guy, you know, the pizza maker, the, you know, those guys, they often want a consistent amount each week. They want a salary. And so they say, I'll only work for a salary. Now, as the employer, even if they ask for it, even if they say they won't work for anything but a salary, if you go ahead and pay that salary and don't pay overtime to this non-exempt employee, there's exposure. It is a violation and it won't be a defense that the employee wanted it that way. Um, like you mentioned, you know, flex, uh, you know, I, I think flex time is one of those things, right? Where an employee employer might see, all right, the employee worked, you know, 50 hours in week one and all right, we'll have them work 30 hours in week two then so that they've averaged 40 hours a week and, oh, we're not going to pay overtime because, you know, it's a biweekly payroll. Again, right, that's a problem because, you know, overtime uh, calculations are done on a weekly basis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, I think employers just need to you know, understand, you know, there might be some creative ideas out there in terms of complying and keeping budget costs down. Uh, but it's important to ensure that these ideas uh, that even your employees might agree with, you know, to ensure they're actually compliant. So... Uh, again, I'm going to always try to err on the side of the employer and what was maybe going through their head, because I don't think people who are intentionally breaking the law are watching this show to learn how to break the law even better, right? They're, 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 they're here to like learn, right? So if you are an employer that you're just trying to smooth out the weekly paychecks so you don't have a bunch of big ones, we don't have a bunch of small ones and just even it out, it's illegal. It may be well-intentioned. It's illegal. Uh, the other use case that was interesting you talked about is I, I think a lot of employers just don't realize there, there's two, two things. There's the, there's the FLSA requirement that you must classify employees as either exempt or non-exempt. And there are 
there's litmus test of whether that person is a 1099 contractor or not. Those are two separate, separate contacts, uh, 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 concepts, but they, they relate to each other. And I think there's a lot of employers think, oh, I'll just pay them like a contractor. Well, that's not your decision. There, there, there are tests to decide whether it's a 1099 or whether it's an employee. And if it's an employee, you must classify exempt or not exempt. And if it's uh, non-exempt, that you have to pay overtime. Period. You, you don't get to contract around the law. Yeah. So I, I think those are probably the two most common use cases where uh, an employer may have good intentions, but they still find themselves in trouble. In this case, two business yeah. owners over six hundred grand. I mean, that very likely could have put them out of business. I have no idea. Maybe they were super well yielded, uh, yeah. but. I mean, for and a look, employee company, 600 grand will put most people out of business. Yeah. And look, based on these violations and the number of employees, I mean, look, I could have easily have seen this audit coming in in seven figures. So, you know, that 604 figure, you know, is probably, you know, a, 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 on the more reasonable side, because, you know, given this factual scenario and the number of employees, you know, the exposure, you know, could have been far worse. Um, you know, and... and Mike, to your point exactly on the independent contractor issue and the exemption issue, right? I think employers often, you know, put the cart before the horse, right? In that, you know, I'll ask them, hey, you know, do you have, you know, is this person an independent contractor or employee? Well, we've classified them as an independent contractor. We have an agreement with them that they are and the employee's fine with it. So, yeah, right. But no, that's not telling us, are they a contractor under law, right? That's what we need to determine. And same with, right, the exemption, you know, uh, you know, the, the, I love when I ask an employer, you know, um, you know, about, you know, someone's classification and they tell me, well, we pay them a salary, so they're exempt. <laughs> you know, that's not the test, right? Yeah. We need to meet the duties right. tests for, for the certain exemptions. And so, right. again, you know, whenever an employer is doing something that's, you know, basically getting around the law, especially in the wage and hour context, it's a good idea to look into, is this permitted? Am I, you know, going under the floor set by the FLSA and, uh, you know, creating issues? And Brian, I mean, we're not trying to unduly scare people here, right? Um, there's people who are well-intentioned and maybe they just heard this and saying, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm out, uh, out of bounds on this thing. Maybe I'm on a fine line, but you know what? They worked for me for 15 years they, go, they come to my kids' birthday parties. I go to their kids' birthday parties. We're like family here. I mean, all that's true. And that does, so maybe you're not going to get turned in. But just think about this last, call it two years. Have you been to the grocery store? I mean, it, that same employee, may, maybe you're close like family. Things have changed a lot in a, in a, in, in a, in a person's ability to even feed their family. I mean, it, it's it's insane. You go to the grocery store, you try to fill up your tank. The inflation, and this is not a, an economics, you know, uh, political conversation. Inflation has increased people's costs so much that they may just be more sensitized to these issues than ever before. And maybe they were okay with it all the time they've, all the years they've worked for you. Until now, because now they actually need the money, right? Yeah, and it's spot on, Mike, because I, I think, you know, the way I've seen it a lot with, you know, wage and hour litigation or audits is that it's usually a, a financial issue, right? It's, you know, because I've heard, heard those, you know, stories from clients too that, you know, th this guy came to our, you know, weddings or, you know, uh, you know, all, all sorts of events and, you know, birthday celebrations, and then they go and file something. And look, it's simply because people are going to be loyal until there's, you know, a bigger issue. And obviously money is a big issue, you know, having tight budgets these days because inflation, you know, only, you know, worsens those issues. So yeah, that's, you know, provides a, you know, prime um, set of circumstances for, you know, employees who might have, you know, been okay, you know, gone along with these policies before, but now it's actually hurting them and, you know, where it counts. Yeah. I mean, people, people behave differently when you're impacting their ability to feed their kids. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's literally the situation for a lot of folks. Okay, let's move on to the next one here. Uh, the second case. So this is a this is this is really interesting. Um, yeah. 
because it's not just employees, it's a customer that, that's involved here. So there's a grocery store. The title is grocery store to pay $50,000 to settle EEOC sexual harassment lawsuit. Okay. Uh, this is the business, their, their grocery store. They agreed to pay this $50,000 fine uh, uh, to, to settle this sexual harassment lawsuit. And the lawsuit was filed by not the employee, the EEOC. Okay. Uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, right? Uh, according to the EEOC lawsuit, the business subjected female employees at the grocery store uh, to frequent unwelcome sexual touching by a regular customer, not employee, a customer of the store for several years. Although female employees repeatedly complained to store supervisors, the company failed to take prompt corrective action to prevent or stop the harassment. The repeated complaints went unheeded. One female employee called the police who came to the store and issued the customer a trespass notice signed by the store manager. Nevertheless, the customer is still allowed back in the store. Big mistake. Uh, the decree the, the resolving the lawsuit requires the business to pay $50,000 to one victim of the harassment. The, businesses will the business will develop or revise policies and procedures to prevent corrective sexual harassment. They're also required to conduct annual training for all employees and managers, and the EEOC is going to monitor all this. So this is one, I mean, it sounds so egregious when you read it like this, in the way these articles are written. Um, I'm going to give the owner of the business the benefit of the doubt that maybe they thought they couldn't control a customer. They thought they had control over employees, but maybe they didn't think there's anything they could do about it. And or maybe those managers didn't even report it to the owner. There's, a, there's a, an excellent chance the owner never even knew about it until the lawsuit was filed. What, 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 what would be, if you could help these guys step back in time and you were their, you were their attorney, how, how would you advise them? Yeah, so yeah, this is a real interesting spin on you know the typical sexual harassment scenario where it's being done by a third party, right? So I think you know, the guidance starts with an understanding of the law, right? Where employers should understand and listen clear on this, right? an employer can be held liable, right? Vicariously liable for the harassment by third parties or even coworkers of uh, an employee of the company, right? And so, you know, basically what an employer, what an employee must show is that the employer knew or should have known about the harassment and it failed to take prompt remedial action. And so, right here, that that clearly took place right we don't have necessarily all the details to explain you know maybe there's some mitigating circumstances maybe it's just like you said an employer didn't understand their obligations or that they could you know do things so you know i, I mean first obviously a, a well-drafted you know written uh harassment policies you know the starting point for everything uh but you know from there i mean once an employer is put on notice right and of a potential complaint of harassment, right? And that could be, like you said, Mike, it doesn't need to be a complaint to the head of the company or a complaint to the head of HR, right? It can right. be a complaint to the supervisor. Right. Uh, and, you know, those need to uh, get up, move up the line to the right person who can address it. And so, right, what should typically happen is, right, once you have that complaint, there should be a prompt investigation. And, you know, here, a prompt investigation would have uncovered, uh, you know, that this individual was being harassed. And, you know, once the employers on the no on notice of being harassed, I mean, this is very clear. I mean, physical touching is just never acceptable. Uh, and so, right, the employer was on notice. And so it's obligated to take, uh, you know, prompt action that's reasonably calculated to end the harassment. Right. So, you know, here the, the company took no action, but, um, you know, there there are various things they could have done. Right. They, they could have, you know, like you mentioned, they, they, you know, they could go to the extreme and bar this you know individual from the store. They could also have management speak to this individual and, you know, or that, you know, try to resolve it that way or ensure that whenever this individual came to the store, that there's a manager there making sure, for instance, that, you know, they you know, if there's a cashier that they went to a different cashier, but again, we'd then want to monitor and make sure there's no issue. But, right. you know, there's a whole host of things that could have been done 
may or may not have worked, but at least could have been attempted. Um, and so, yeah, I think this provides a great example. But, you know, look, there, there are other times. You know, I, I just want to go through some other you know, potential examples of when this can occur, because it's, you know, it's not always customers. Right. You know, think of other non-employees who come into your workplace. Right. In a given week. Right. That could be vendors. Right. It could be delivery people. Right. The people who deliver, you know, milk for the fridge or deliver paper. Yeah. Right? right. You know, there are lots of delivery people that come in. Maybe right. you know, maybe one of the delivery people, you know, constantly asks the receptionist on a date, you know, even though she declines or makes right. you know comments to the receptionist, you know, every time he sees her. Right. And that's repeated conduct. And again, if there is no reason for the employer to know about it, it won't be it won't necessarily have exposure. But if there are people that observe it, right, they can't ignore it, especially if it's somewhat supervisor or management. And of course, right, a complaint should be taken seriously. Um, now, obviously, you know, there's no magic word that complainants need to use. Right. You know, an employee doesn't need to say, you know, sexual harassment, and, you know, the magic words. Um, but, you know, that's where, you know, certainly training for managers comes in so that they can identify when they're, you know, hearing a complaint or they can identify when they're seeing something that's potentially inappropriate and can take action. Right. So, you know, I think, you know, management training for this company could have gone real far. Right. People would have known the manager would have known this is not something to to ignore. Right. Even in this one, you know, when it escalated all the way to the police being called and the manager signed a police document. Right. That should have been a clear indication we got they had to do something. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I say I'll give the owners the benefit of the doubt most of the time. Um, I mean, if there's a, if the police were called, I mean, oh my gosh, right. So maybe maybe you were just a, a little out of touch, and you're like, hey, that oh, that's just Johnny. He didn't mean any harm by it, and you're and just you're kind of clueless about the inappropriateness of that. Uh, when the police were called, by God, that that should be a gigantic red flag that you you need you need to act. <clears throat> and if I go back to, and I'm probably going to go on thin ice here. It, even if you as an owner didn't think it was material sexual harassment and maybe you thought your employee was overreacting and that's the reason you did nothing, you're, you're still in very dangerous water. You have to act. You have to investigate. You have to remediate. That doesn't mean you're choosing sides even, but it does mean you are responding in a legally responsible manner. What, what, what would you say about that? Cause, yeah. cause, because we, yeah. again, if I'm giving the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to assume the owner, either they didn't know or they thought the employee was overreacting and, oh, that's just Johnny, right? And as right. silly and stupid and out of touch culturally in the in the moment that may be, right, what would be your guidance to the employer who thought, who maybe took the side of the customer here and thought their employee was overreacting? Right. No, what, what you state, you know, just it really cements how important documented investigations are, right? Because, right, let's give the the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, you know, the employer did look into it, but they have no documentation, right? The, the manager spoke to the employee. They didn't think it was serious or, you know, they didn't think it was a credible complaint. And, you know, maybe it's one of those situations where, you know, like a bartender who's, you know, dealing with, you know, numerous people, you know, hitting on her, you know, throughout a shift, you know, the manager says, you know, grow, grow thicker skin, right? You know, that's not the right response, but I, you know, it, you know, it happens. And so I think, you know, this just shows that it's so important to doc to conduct a prompt investigation and document it, right? The result may be that nothing inappropriate occurred, but now at least the company can show they took the complaint seriously. And look, companies don't get charged with getting investigations right. Right. You know, the same way, you know, we can we might never know what the actual truth is. All a company can do is, you know, conduct interviews, get the documentation together and then weigh the evidence and come to a result. And so, you know, if this company could have done an investigation and perhaps there could have been information that said, no, it's not a credible complaint. Right. And 
they would have then been credited for taking, you know, this prompt action. And even if they were wrong, it might not mean exposure, but it's the fact that they did nothing, right? And they did nothing. And, and that as, is as evidenced by the outcome, it was a, it, it's not a fine. It's a lawsuit that was filed by the EEOC against the business. And it was $50,000. That's, that's a fairly pull the number out of the sky. You did bad. I'm going to punish you to the tune of $50,000 kind of a number. Had they, had they, regardless of the rightness or wrongness of the accusation, had they just had a good paper trail that showed oh, this is serious. We're going to investigate. Here's the results of our investigation. We actually think our employee uh, was in the wrong here and we continue to let this customer come back and here's why. I mean, they might have still had the cost to defend if the employee went to the EOC, right. but it's, it probably wouldn't have ended this way. Right. No, exactly. And look, for you know, setting the right culture at a workplace too, you know, look, you know, if employees understand that when I make complaints, it's taken seriously and they're going to look into it and, hey, you know, they might not always come out on my side, but I know they're listening to me and looking into it. That That's huge, right? That means that, you know, in this scenario, that employee wouldn't have had to go and file with the EEOC, right? They would have felt respected and that, you know, their company, you know, actually cared about their well-being by, you know, promptly looking into this. Uh, yeah. So I think, you yeah. know, that's another way to keep things, you know, you know, prevent actual losses, right? You know, right. by investigating things that will can absolutely result in less litigation because, look, employees want to feel respected. They, they want to feel that you are taking their concerns seriously and performing an investigation right immediately, not waiting a week, not waiting several days, but, you know, starting it that day or the next day. That's important. And then you know, communicating with the, you know, complainant throughout the process so that they understand that it's being investigated, you know, very important. And I think, you know, that type of follow up and commitment to, you know, a company's, you know, policies um, can certainly, you know, avoid this type of uh, action, right? Even if they don't get it right, you know, the just going through the process and having that to show is worth a lot here, worth money, you know, to the employer. Last thing I'll say on this subject, I, uh, I, for the for the intent of the show, I'm probably always going to continue to advocate, maybe obnoxiously for the employer. Also, as a dad with a bunch of daughters, if uh, one of your employees complains, you know, step up and do something about it and do the right thing. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Okay, uh, next case: uh, two hundred seventy thousand dollars in back wages due to restaurant workers from a Department of Labor DOL investigation. So this was a Mexican food restaurant. Uh, they violated the Fair Labor Standards Act, the FLSA. These practices included requiring servers to share tips with dishwashers, specifically deducting $5 a night on Fridays and Saturdays. Additionally, maybe a well-intentioned thing, right? Um, additionally, the employer failed to pay overtime wages to non-exempt employees who worked more than 40 hours in a work week. The result of the violations is that 82 employees are going to benefit from recovered back wages totaling $270,751. Further investigation by the DOL discovered the business neglected to pay non-exempt employees the proper minimum wage for all hours in a work week. Additionally, uh, the company failed to, come, uh, failed to maintain accurate records, also a requirement of FLSA, uh, for some of the employees' work hours. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, this one, it hit me in two ways. The, the, when I first started reading this, I'm like, oh, man, they were trying to be they were trying to be good. Their kitchen staff and and they're you know, they probably work on ridiculously thin margins trying to squeak out a living. They they feel empathetic for their you know dishwasher and they want them to share in, you know, the success of the business. And let's do a tip out to them. And we'll just do that in the form of a deduction so that they don't get screwed here. Um, but it's illegal. It's just flatly illegal. Let's let's maybe unpack that first part before we kind of go to the second part, which, okay, maybe just flat ignorance of the law and it's a bit more egregious. Right. So, yeah, starting with the, the tip pool issue, right? You know, look, and I agree with you that, you know, by all accounts, right, this employer 
you know, was not ill-intentioned, right? They thought that, you know, spreading around the money among the employees would be, you know, better than, you know, the front of the house getting it all. And, you know, right, there's no indication that, right, they were, the employer was taking any money from the tip pool, which would obviously be a violation. Um, but yeah, you know, in terms of who can share in a tip pool, uh, the federal law kind of sets it up, uh, you know, in a bifurcated way, right? And it's depending on whether the company elects the tip credit or not, it potentially changes who could be allowed to partake in that tip pool. Um, yeah, as with anything, you know, state requirements can be different, though, you know, many states do follow the, the FLSA. So, you know, in a traditional tip pool, uh, which I, I believe that's the, the case here, is that, you know, tipped food service employees are paid pursuant to the tip credit, uh, which means, right, instead of under, you know, the FLSA paying the full $7.25 uh, minimum wage, you're paying, you get a tip credit, which is $5.12 per hour. So you're really, the employer is only paying, what, uh, $2.13 per hour. Uh, so if you're, you know, and that's allowable, that is absolutely lawful. And, you know, many employers do elect to take the tip credit because it's a financial benefit to them. But if they select, if they elect the tip credit and pay that way, then only tipped employees can be part of the tip pool, right? Those would be, you know, waiters, bartenders, um, you know, bussers, you know, bellhops in a, you know, in a hotel. So, you know, only those in occupations that customarily and regularly receive the tips can can participate. Right. So that's clearly what what uh, was violated in this situation where these employees were likely paid pursuant to the tip credit. And then we're including back of the house uh, individuals in that tip pool. Right. Dishwashers, um, you know, they're not in a regularly tipped occupation. So they shouldn't be getting, you know, tips. So what will happen there, right? The employer is going to have to, you know, they don't get to take that money back from the dishwashers, but, you know, presumably, you know, all of the $5 per night that was deducted, all of that is now uh, owed to a group of servers, right? Who, who were in the tip pool and should have received that money. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, in the other situation where an employer does not take the tip credit, right, and the employer plays the full minimum wage, then, then, you know, you can include other individuals that are not in regularly tipped occupations, like a dishwasher, or, you know, um, in, in that tip pool. But that's only if the full minimum wage is paid. Um, and I, I should note, be, you know, irregardless of tip credit, managers and supervisors cannot partake in a tip pool. Uh, managers, if they're working, you know, in a server capacity, they can keep their directly provided tips that are directly given to them, uh, but they can't share in any tip pool. So, you know, I think initially, you know, that is the big issue that occurred here. And, you know, again, this is one tip issue. There, there are lots of others that I, that I see as a you know, common occurrence that, that violate the FLSA. Um, Brian, one of the things that jumped out to me here is that uh, there's, they're probably clearly black and white out of bounds anyway, but there's an arbitrariness here also that this was a rule for just Friday and Saturday nights, right? right. I mean, the, the FLSA doesn't have any rule that says, oh, if it's on a Friday, right, and it's the summer solstice and we're serving this type of food this night, the FLSA is the FLSA. You don't get to choose and make up these rules on your own. Right. Right. And, you know, just to uh, touch on a couple other, you know, common uh, tip issues that I see, uh, you know, one is, you know, an employer should understand this can this has some positive and some negatives. Right. You know, a lot of customers pay on a credit card. Right. And credit card companies typically charge, you know, the restaurant, you know, some percentage, uh, you know, processing fee, like two or three percent or what have you. And the law provides, the FLSA allows the employer, right, to deduct that fee from credit card tips, right? So if a customer leaves a $100 tip on a credit card and that credit, you know, that credit card, you know, has a 2% processing fee, then the employer 
can take out that 2% and only provide, you know, the $98 of tips that they were, uh, they received. Um, so that's one thing. And certainly, you know, that, that, that can be good, right? Because an employer doesn't have to, uh, burden themselves by, you know, paying the credit card processing fee and then also paying that same money to the, uh, tipped employee. Uh, but of course, an employer can't go and take, you know, deduct more than what that credit card fee is. Um, right. Do you have any insight here? If we, if we move off of tips uh, to the overtime violations, do you have any, was it just a classic uh, exempt, non-exempt misclassification issue? So I, I think what occurred here uh, was that the employee, the employees would have been paid, you know, an hourly rate. Um, but there's often mistakes that companies make with calculating overtime uh, when they're electing the tip credit, right? So, like I said before, right, we take the full, you know, federal minimum wage of seven twenty-five an hour, and there's you know a five dollar twelve cent tip credit. So the wages that the uh, employer has to pay these people is only two dollars and thirteen cents per hour. And so a common mistake is then saying, all right, for overtime hours. I'm just going to take time and a half of $2.13, right? That's the wrong way. The right way to calculate overtime for tipped employees is you take the full minimum wage, which is seven and a quarter, multiply that by time and a half, you get to $10.87, $10.87, and then you subtract the tip credit amount. So you take $10.87, yeah. Minus the $5.12. So you can so, see how somebody could, I mean, maybe they're being cheap, but maybe they're trying to also survive and keep their business open. You can see how that could be an innocent mistake, but uh, that, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, it is a common one with a tip credit. So employers should be careful about that overtime calculation. Yeah. So most likely this wasn't someone trying to contract outside of the law or just being ignorant and, hey, we don't pay overtime. They probably thought they were doing it right, but they were just calculating off the wrong base. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and that's the problem with the FLSA, right? An innocent mistake is still a mistake that, you know, it's exposes the company to liability. The last one in this that I wanted to point out is around record keeping. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess that part of this $270,000 fine Maybe they, maybe they were doing it right, but they couldn't prove it. And because they, because that was, I, I suspect anyway. And I want you to comment. I suspect uh, that uh, the DOL did an audit. They they concretely confirmed that you were doing it wrong in the in this case or these cases. But because you couldn't prove that you were doing it right in these, you got this. Is that probably how this played out? You think? Absolutely. And, you know, that is a problem that I see in my practice on, on almost a daily basis, right? That the employer might have some records, but not all of them, and maybe not enough to establish compliance, right? For instance, you know, take an hourly employee who gets paid overtime, but we have no pay stub, right? There's, the company just doesn't issue pay stubs. So every week, this employee just gets a check or, you know, gets cash and some, some amount. Right. Maybe they come and allege that they were paid a salary and they're owed overtime. They were never paid any overtime. Realistically, they probably were. But, you know, how is the employer going to prove it if it has no payroll records to show the amount of hours worked, the rate, the regular rate, the overtime rate? And, you know, that is exactly what the FLSA's record keeping requirements are geared towards. Right. You know, all the stuff that's required under the FLSA to be kept by employers are really for employers' own benefit because they are the things that an employer will use to show compliance, right? So, you know, there are some smaller things, but, you know, records for non-exempt employees, right? These are, this is really our focus here. Uh, you know, they should, you know, we need to keep, you know, establish, their, have documentation of their hourly rate, their hours and days worked each week, you know, their weekly straight time earnings, their weekly overtime earnings, you know, right. total wages. But, you know, these are records. So what, what I'm talking about, that's a lot of payroll. But, you know, there's other stuff, right? The FLSA requires companies to keep uh, preserve payroll records for at least three years uh, and two years for, you know, time records and work schedules. Um, 
And so, and again, just be aware, right? These set the minimum, your specific state or locality, for instance, in New York, you know, they were, you know, the statute of limitations is six years. So minimally, you know, you're keeping records for six, maybe even seven years to be safe. Uh, but here under the FLSA, we're talking, you know, the requirements are two or three years. And, you know, the other thing to recall is these records need to remain available, right? If the DOL ever comes knocking for an audit, which is a real possibility, the company needs to respond within 72 hours with the documentation like payroll. So if it's in storage, that could present a problem. So often, you know, if companies cannot store, you know, records at, you know, a specific work site, they should find a centralized uh, record keeping office where they can keep everything so that, you know, they have a space where they know everything is and, you know, you get, you get a lawsuit, an audit, you're ready to comply with the law and produce the records. Last thing I maybe want to say on this, we'll move on to the next one. And I always come back to these, so many, so many business owners think that, okay, that might be the law, but we're a small company. I've never had anybody sue me. All my, I have a great relationship with all my employees. They're all long-term employees. And it, it, you could get lulled to sleep of not having good records for years, even decades in some cases. And you probably do have fantastic relationship with your employees. And maybe you're a 15-employee company, and it's employee number 16. It's that one person who all of a sudden feels grieved and maybe they're wrong and you're right, but they feel grieved. They report this somehow. Now all of a sudden DOL is auditing all the records for all these employees who do love you and who have loved you for years and you're screwed because you have no records, no documentation to prove it. And the fine's coming, even though all your employees don't want the fine to come. They think you're, you're being the victim here, that yeah. it, but it's coming. Am I right? Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I've seen that play out so many times, right? Where, you know, the DOL, they just, you know, they can come in randomly or it all takes is one employee complaint. And the DOL is not necessarily coming in to just investigate the one employee complaint, right? If they're a uh, salesperson or what have you, and you have 25 other salespeople, they're going to look at all your salespeople. And right, if there's a problem for one, it's likely you did the same wrong thing for others. And it's kind of like the DOL version of a class action, right? That, you know, they're going to look at a whole classification or company wide, uh, you know, uh, God forbid. Um, and so, you know, you, you have those issues. And uh, again, that just means you, know, you can't get, like you said, you can't get lulled to sleep because some employees are, you know, are okay with it because when the DOL comes after you, it's not up to these employees whether they want to be part of the of the audit or not. They're included, and if there's exposure, the DOL will get that money from the employer, regardless of whether the employees are actually interested in receiving it. Let's move on to case number four here, and we'll probably accelerate to these last couple, I think, because uh, for sake of time. Uh, manufacturer pays $175,000 to settle ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, violations. Uh, again, this is an EEOC lawsuit. So these things can come at you in different ways. It's an EEOC lawsuit, business-based allegations denying employment to a class of individuals the company unlawfully regarded as disabled. The applicants were offered positions as packing operators or material handlers but were subjected to pre-employment medical and physical examinations. Subsequently, the, the company rescinded job offers based on unfounded assumptions about their physical condition, particularly related to the, related to the ability to, to, back, uh, to, to back impairments and lifting abilities. Uh, the EOC argued that the business actions violated the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, which strictly prohibits employers from discriminating against applicants and employees based on actual perceived or record of disability. The business managers and human resource personnel are now required to undergo specialized training on ADA prohibitions against disability discrimination and their legal obligations to prevent, address, and remedy such discrimination. What can you tell us about this case? Because, again, I'm assuming the owner of this business wasn't thinking – they're going to they're going to discriminate against people with you know disabilities they probably thought they were doing the right thing here right 
No, exactly. And so, right, I think this type of uh, situation is, you know, much more common, you know, than you might think because, you know, the employer is, you know, perhaps giving them, again, giving them benefit of the doubt, they're thinking, well, you know, I'm just making sure I don't, you know, put someone in a position that where, you know, they might get injured or, you know, set them up for failure in a position because, you know, they they can't lift what I'm going to ask them to lift, right? But unfortunately, right, this, this raises the issue of being regarded or perceived as disabled under the ADA, which is, you know, normally we're just dealing with an employee who is, has a disability under the ADA and, you know, issues of whether they were discriminated against or really, you know, quite often for employers, you know, what, you know, how to accommodate and whether, you know, there's a reasonable accommodation. That's not what we're talking about here, right? So with respect to regarded as, you know, quote unquote, regarded as, you know, what that means is that the employer, uh, you know, regarded as discrimination means the employer has subjected the employer, the individual to some action prohibited by the ADA because of a perceived physical or mental impairment. Um, now, again, all the employee has to do to establish a claim like this is show the employer believed they had an impairment that substantially limited their, you know, performance of a major life activity. So, you know, again, there's no duty to accommodate someone who the employer perceives as being disabled, but isn't. Um, but the problem here, right, is that you can't take action based on that, right? So here, these, these individuals, these applicants, uh, you know, they, were, they, they went through these exams and they were not actually uh, disabled, right? There, there was not, but the company had unfounded assumptions, whatever those might be about their conditions and, you know, re you know uh, revoked their offers. So that is the problem here. And, you know, as a best practice, you know, employers should really just focus on the job, you know, on the behavior at issue or the job performance at issue or those requirements and not the underlying cause, right? Here they were looking at an underlying cause, right? You know, whether there's a back impairment or uh, they could, you know, instead the employer should simply be asking the employee, can you perform this position, right? You may be asked upon it to, uh, you know, carry things, uh, you know, of, you know, 50 pounds, you know, is that something you're, you're able to do, right? So those are things that are asked about the actual position. And, you know, that's where, you know, the inquiry should really be. Um, not this is so interesting because this is, as it turns out, it's an ADA violation that was for people who didn't have disabilities, but it was the wrongful application of the, of, the, of the discriminating practice, right? Right, and, and yeah, exactly. And so, you know, a, a very similar uh, type situation is a uh, employees who have a record of a disability. So, right, they might, they're not disabled currently, but, you know, they have some record, you know, some past history of having been classified with a physical or mental, you know, impairment, right? And, you know, it's also, you know, unlawful to discriminate against someone because of that record, right? So, you know, let's say in this situation, they had an employee who, you know, had a back problem, maybe a stress fracture in the back years ago uh, that they disclosed. But the question is, can they perform now, right? Yes. And it's, you know, they're saying it doesn't, you know, I'm not impaired by that now. But if the employer took the, well, we can't risk you, you know, hurting yourself again, we're, you know, we can't hire you. Well, that would be, discrimination based on regard, you know, uh, based on the person have a record of uh, disability. So, you know, again, those are two instances of where, you know, someone without a disability has a viable claim under the ADA. Um, you know, so I think it's, you know, very important that um, employers, you know, I think very much tied to this, that employers understand, you know, what they can and cannot ask at certain times. Um, there's not necessarily an indication that there is a timing issue here, but, you know, the, the uh, you know, the case scenario you mentioned, you know, included uh, some pre-employment uh, medical or, you know, physical examinations, right? Um, and so, yeah, that, that brings up an, an issue too of, you know, the law allows it, but there are certain requirements as to when, 
right? So just real quick to get through this, you know, if an applicant has not received a conditional offer of employment, then really the employer's hands are tied, right? You can't ex ask about, you know, the existence of any disability, you know, no questions about their medical condition. You, know, you can ask about their, you know, ability to perform the functions of the job, uh, but not inquiring into the disability. Um, you know, if the employee voluntarily discloses a disability, you know, for instance, during an interview, you know, an employer can ask if they'll need a reasonable accommodation, but that's really the, only, the extent of it before an offer is made. After a conditional offer employment's been made, right, then the employer can make certain disability-related inquiries, um, provided, though, that they make those very same inquiries to every single other individual um, for that job category you know, or position. All right, let's move to our last one. Uh, staffing company penalized by Justice, Justice Department for requiring excessive employment paperwork. This is, a, this is an interesting one. The Justice, Depart Justice Department's investigation to a staffing company stemmed from a complaint made by a newly hired non-U.S. citizen worker. The worker alleged the staff demanded unnecessary documentation to prove per permission to work, even though he had already provided sufficient proof. The investigation revealed that the office routinely required certain non-U.S. citizens to present additional immigration documents, despite already having valid documentation. Assistant Attorney General, uh, Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark emphasized that demanding excessive documentation from workers causes undue stress, financial hardships, and obstacles to employment, particularly for vulnerable individuals. To, to resolve the violations, the business had agreed, they have, have agreed to a settlement with the Justice Department. As part of that settlement, the company will pay civil penalties and be subject to departmental monitoring for a three-year period. This is tough because I can see as a business owner, you're super paranoid. You don't want to break any laws, right? And you don't want ice knocking down your door because you've done something wrong. You think you're being extra diligent and really you're being discriminatory. What's, what's, your, what's your guidance here for a business owner? Right. No, you're exactly right. And, and again, giving this employer the benefit of the doubt, you know, maybe they just thought it's better to really, you know, cross our T's, dot our I's, be ab abundantly sure that, you know, these people have right. authorization to work, at, you know, in the U.S. But again, right, that's the problem. So what we're really dealing here is, you know, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, uh, which governs the I-9 process. So that's really what we're dealing here. Uh, you know, when you you know hire a new employee, you sit them down typically you know on or before the first day of work, and you know you have them fill out the I nine form. You get you know you have the column A documents where you can provide a column A document, or you need to provide you know one from column B and one from columns column C. Uh, and you know there are uh, uh, you know the Justice Department or, or ICE, you know, they have. Um, there are instructions for the I-9 form that, you know, can you can walk through this. Um, you know, training is always good for, you know, whatever individual in your business is handling the I-9 process. Yeah. Uh, but really what the law says is the employer should only accept the documents that are required by column A, B, and C, and only accept what's necessary, right? So. If I'm taking, you know, one document from B and one document from C to establish identity and authorization to work, you know, that means I'm only taking those two documents, right? Now, what often is a situation, and this has come up for many of my clients, especially when they're dealing with uh, a population of workers that might not be fluent in English and be able to read the I-9 form. So, you know, perhaps, you know, you have employees who might not understand, you know, which documents I need to provide. And so let's say we have a scenario where that employee says, oh, here's five documents I have. I think these are, you know, all you, what you might need under, you know, columns A, B, or C. And let's say the employer then says, all right, thank you for all those documents, takes them, copies them, 
uh, you know, fills out the I-9, they've, that's potentially unlawful, right? Because you should have only limited it to the documents required and the, the minimum amount of documents required. We're not asking for more. Now, and what this is so is- ironic because the case we just reviewed was about not having good enough records. And so, uh, you know, poor entrepreneurs and business owners, it's like we, we thump them over the head, keep more records, better records, more detail. Uh, and again, it's entirely possible that this was an intentional discriminatory practice trying to weed out a certain group of people. It, it could have been that. Um, but it's more likely in my mind that it was somebody it was a staffing company, right? Yep. Their reputation's on the line because they're going to put that employee out at, at somebody else. And if they're putting somebody who's not legally qualified to work, it's their business that's in their brand and their reputation. So they, they probably given the benefit of the doubt, thought they were just being extra diligent. It's just yeah, so I mean, hard. Yeah. It, it it's hard because we, we tell, tell them more records, better records, keep more. But in this, this is one of those cases, follow the law, nothing more. Right. And I think the key here is, you know, we're, all, we're always preaching, you know, consistency, right? Treat employees the same, right? That's, right. you know, that's how, right. you know, good HR is, right? And so I think, you know, that's also a problem, right? If they had required additional documentation for all employees, U.S. citizens and non-U.S. citizens alike, it, it would not have complied with the law, right? They're still burdening these employees, but that might not be discriminatory, right? That might be an I-9, you know, violation, right. but it won't be, dis- it would not be discriminatory. It's really they're good. Not having different practices for different groups of, uh, you know, employees based on, you know, citizenship. So here, the real problem for the discrimination element of this was that they're treating non-U.S. citizens different, right? They were requiring additional documents from these non-U.S. citizens, which, you know, the Justice Department looks at that as being intended to, you know, um, you know, push those those applicants, those employees away, right? Because, you know, maybe it's too burdensome to come up with this, right? So that, that I think is, is the intent here. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it is tough, right? Because we have said, you know, more documentation on, you know, uh, discipline is great. Documentation on uh, wage and hour stuff is great. But right, when it comes to I-9s, no, no, more is not better. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's important to understand. And look, I think uh, it's a very good idea to have, you know, whoever in your organization is in charge of the I-9 process to have training because it's not so simple. There's a lot of work, you know, moving parts with the I-9s and, you know, depending on what, you know, a work authorization someone has that, you know, you can't just take uh, an employee off the street and say, hey, you're our I-9 guy now, go go do these. So uh, it's an important one. And, you know, the Justice Department, you know, and, and ICE can be aggressive with, you know, I-9, you know, violations or I-9 discrimination, um, you know, in, in this situation here, I know, you know, the, it didn't tell us, you know, how much the employer was going to get fined, but I can tell you, I've regularly seen six figure, uh, you know, fines from, uh, from the justice department in these types of cases. I think, uh, I, I hadn't thought about, but the point you made about consistency, uh, again, we, our, our guidance is to follow the law, period. And so uh, uh, it is outside the requirement to ask for additional forms of identification. You shouldn't do that anyway. But if you if you made that error and you were doing it with everybody, then may, maybe you get away with a slap on the wrist. Maybe, maybe nothing happens. But when people feel aggrieved because they feel they're tr- treated differently than the rest, that's when you're on thin ice, right? Yeah, exactly. Brian, is there anything else on this one you want to say before we wrap? No, I think that really uh, co- covers that uh, scenario. Yeah. Okay. So uh, five use cases, very different, uh, every single one of them. I, I, I like this format that we do once in a while, Brian, because I think it's important to unpack singular HR legal topics every once in a while. But I think for the most part, most businesses, most business owners they're just grinding away, trying to make a living and treat their employees best they can. 
uh, you won't be in business long if you don't. But they're unaware of what the laws even are. And then there's more laws that are passed every single day. They just layer on top of each other and increasingly sometimes conflict and contradict each other. It, it leaves people's heads spinning. So uh, hopefully this is a good good use of everybody's time that they can just see. Even if you're well-intentioned, you got to do HR right because it can it can cost you. Yeah, well said, Mike. Okay, Brian, good to talk to you as always. Uh, until next time, thanks for everybody joining. We'll talk to you next week. At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront costs and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws, visit AssureSoftware.com.